I hope you've had a wonderful Easter weekend, although that's difficult if you are a South African citizen, because life in our country is tough. It has been tough for years now, from all the shenanigans within the political arena, the state of our economy, and perhaps most devastatingly over the last couple of days, hundreds of people who've been killed, many more who are still lost, property that has been damaged, and of course, more economic woes consequently for us as a country as a result of what has happened in KZN, where we've had torrential rains and deadly floods and mudslides consequently. So I doubt that you are well rested psychologically or otherwise, but the show must go on and we must keep chipping away at our structural problems as a country. And that includes what we bring you by way of discussions here on Eusebius on Times Live. Welcome to another edition. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking to my colleague, from Marina Holdings, one of our senior investigative journalists and one of the best in the country, Sabelo Skiti, who has kept, of course, tabs on many stories involving, speaking of bad news, corruption over the years. And one of those involve alleged corruption or benefiting from the proceeds of corruption by those close to him or former health minister, Dr. Zueli Mkize. But you may have seen the story over the last few days, and we ran a number of different versions of it, a news report, an analysis piece written by Sabello in the Sunday Times most recently, that Parliament's Ethics Committee has exonerated the former Minister of Health. And um, I wish I could swear, I'm not allowed to on this episode, but your reaction might, like mine, have been WTF. And I asked Sabello to join me the most important objective of this episode is to explain what happened, what perhaps should have happened. And I am always delighted when one of our senior smart reporters are asked to write an analysis piece because the straight reportage is important, but I know that he's got considered views of its own. And that's why I really enjoyed uh, reading him, not just in the front parts of the paper, but on this occasion also in terms of opinion and analysis. Sabella, thanks so much for coming back on this platform. Hi, thanks. You. Thanks for having me, Eusebius. Great to be here. Yeah, let's start by explaining what happened before we get into the ethical and political and sort of principled issues. So just as a reminder, because you blink in our country and the news cycle completely moves away, when it comes to the name Zueli Mkize, two, three years ago, one would have thought such words accompanying it as well-respected, 
solid member of cabinet, presidential hopeful, and then suddenly he disappeared from the scene. What happened? In fact, I mean, Eusebius, if, if, if you remember, I think um, one of the things that gave a lot of South Africans comfort um, as we sort of, you know, moved into lockdown when, you know, um, COVID arrived on our shores in 2020 um, was the fact that Zuelim Kiza was the man at the helm. I seem to remember there were even pieces, I mean, um, you know, praising him and sort of saying, if there was anyone to sort of help us ride through this, um, he would be the man. But little did we know that actually it would be COVID itself, um, you know, that would, um, you know, unwind that whole facade for us, you know, yeah. um, within months, um, it seems as if he had, you know, as he had arrived at the health department, he basically got himself caught up into in, in tender shenanigans there. A 150 million rand tender that was awarded to a company um, that was set up specifically for this, um, that is owned by political aid. I know people like to sort of say that um, Tahira Martha is sort of like a close associate of Zulim Kiza, but if you actually know her role um, in the context of Zulim Kiza's political career, you will understand that she's more than just an associate. She's actually an aide. You know, she would be, if Zulim Kiza was president, Taira would have been the body man, you know, uh, the person that knows all the secrets, that knows all the people to talk to when something does happen. Mm. Um, you know, that's the role that she played. And I think for me, mm. it's important to understand it in that context when you're looking at digital vibes, because you soon get to sort of learn that maybe, you know, this wasn't just your run-of-the-mill corruption. Uh, where people were stealing money to buy Ferraris and go to Conca on a weekend. You know, there was a specific purpose behind it. If you look at where where else the money went, the money went to people that when William Kiza was treasurer general um, at Lutuli House, people that worked in the office that he occupied and people then that also played a role in his then um, political campaign when he wanted to, to be president. You know, so that's that's the people that got the contract and the money that when they when it left digital vibes got paid out. I think that's quite interesting. Can I ask you this question? So you're talking about 100 million rand. What was the point of the tender? What services were being sought by the state? Yeah. So this was basically a communications tender. Um, they were basically going to, you know, um, communicate to us, you know, that we need to wash our hands, uh, do pointed communications on COVID. So what we know from what the SIU picked up in terms of the invoices, um, for instance, these guys would bill when the minister, for instance, would go to the SABC um, to be interviewed and to give updates on the latest that the government was doing in terms of the fight um, to make sure that we manage the outbreak. You know, so those were some of the things. And you also looked at opinion pieces that were being placed, um, the adverts that were being okay. run in the newspapers. So, you know, the, the money that was basically being paid to service providers to do all of those things. That was what the contract was, of course. But we do know that the bulk of that money, at least 80 million, um, that the SIU says was then funneled out of digital vibes unlawfully, um, went into some investments, um, went to some of Tahira Martha's relatives. Some of it found itself to people that Zuelim Kiza does business with, his son, his wife, his uh, daughter-in-law as well, um, had a nail bar that was paid for out of um, those proceeds. Okay, that's kind of interesting. So Digital Vibes, tell me about its ownership structure. Who is legally behind it, directors? I'm trying to understand just how opaque or how transparent 
this malfeasance was. Yeah. So Digital Vibes itself as a company has directors that would have been Tahira Martha. Um, there also would have been um, Zuelim Kiza's personal assistant, uh, Nida Mita, I think her name was. Um, and then there would be a gentleman um, that is known to Tahira in case Zeren, um, who was then brought into the company as well. But one of the things that the SIU also picked up, I mean, when they were looking at, you know, the formation of the company is that the company was formed rather quickly. Um, and it was formed with the express intent of initially chasing business in the Department of Cooperative Governance, where William Kiza was minister. In fact, they then were awarded a contract with a, a, a an SOE under that department called the Municipal Infrastructure um, Agency. So these are the guys that basically would look after, you know, bulk infrastructure in, in municipalities, um, as well as other infrastructure. I was scared that you're going to give me that answer. And the reason I was scared that you're going to give me the answer that you've just given me about the ownership structure is that I don't know what the law says around this, but surely she would have been inherently ineligible to have a company that she is a director of even compete for business in the very department in which she is a staff member of the political principal in charge. Isn't that itself flouting laws that are meant to try and ensure that there are safeguards against even the perception of corruption? Or was she, strictly speaking, from a process point of view, eligible to even compete for the tender? Look, I think, and, and I mean, this is where the detail sort of comes together, you see, is that both of these individuals at that time um, were known to the minister, but were not in any official capacity working in the ministry. You know, so one doesn't know whether this was done purposefully, you know, to sort of sure. say you will not be an advisor, you will not be a chief of staff, yeah. you will not be in my office. But I mean, you and I are journalists, we know that um, at that time, whenever you needed to get a hold of the minister, even when he was at Proctor, um, whenever there were questions that needed to be sent to him, one of the people that we went to was Tahira. You know, although we never understood exactly what role she played in his office. And I suppose because of that, it makes it allowed, right? But what is interesting in this particular, um, you know, instance is that there was never any declaration, um, whether at Cocta or at the Department of Health, of the fact that Tahira is known to the minister. Um, normally what the requirement would be that if I know you as a friend, for instance, and you happen to be a, a civil servant, a minister, um, I would then, as I'm filling in the, the, the bid forms for that particular tender, I would then need to make a declaration that um, I am known to so-and-so and I am known to his family and we are quite close. Um, so that it is known throughout the process and then he can then decide if he is someone who makes decisions on this particular contract. He will either recuse himself or they will take legal advice. But we know that none of that happened. Um, in fact, the only time that the minister then acknowledges um, the proximity of Tahira to him is only after the Daily Maverick starts asking mm. him questions um, about this company and the key individuals in the company. So he then says, look, I mean, how am I supposed to know what these people are getting up to? You know, it was, it was sort of like a response initially that was um, in that sort Which of is just form. preposterous from a common sense point of view. I do want to know, though, from a legal point of view, what kind of influence 
and statutory or other kinds of power does a minister have to make sure that a contract goes to this person rather than that person? Are they even involved at that level? Yeah. So this is where, again, it gets quite interesting, right? Um, if you look at the setup um, of, of, of our state functions, ministers are only involved at a policy level. So they will look at the policies that the department, you know, and, and the direction that the department is taking. The only maybe level of detail that they would go to is when they look at the annual plans um, that the departments draw up if, every year. So they would look at the programs that are there and they would say, this program is good. Why do we have this one, you know, type of thing. But what we find strange in the Department of Health, and they are arguing that even his predecessor, uh, Dr. Aaron Mutualedi was doing this, is that the minister has been signing off on contracts there. Um, so you would run the whole bid process at the end. The DG would be the one that sends then one more memo instead of the DG being the one that signs off and sends the appointment letter. One more memo is written for the minister and then the minister approves. So this is why in this context, we then say that Zulim Kiza approved because he actually did. Now, there's a there's a difference of opinion. When you say he did, by the way, my apologies to interrupt. I just want to be factually clear and play devil's advocate. Are we smelling a rat or does the paper trail demonstrate that kind of involvement in the case at hand? No, the paper trail demonstrates that you be, even he himself, um, you know, admits that he did approve it. So now this is where it becomes, you know, because there's a, there's a difference of opinion. The department still insists that his approval is only on a policy level. You know, the example I was given is that um, if there is an AIDS conference in Europe, for instance, and then maybe one or two or three people in the office need to go, it would go to him to sign off. They said to me, he's not signing off on the airfare and the hotel accommodation. He's signing off in principle on us sending a delegation, okay. you know. But National Treasury and the Department of Public Service, when we wrote that um, part of the story, were quite adamant to say that the minister approving the contract amounted to hibling in procurement, in something that he was not supposed to do. Um, and I mean, what makes me sort of want to, you know, go with that narrative is because if you think about it, um, it was agreed, you know, when the annual plans were laid out anyway, that you would need to communicate um, around NHI, which was what they were initially appointed for. And it was all agreed mm -hmm. by everyone that you would need to, co to communicate around COVID. So why would the minister then need to approve the appointment of a specific company only for policy reasons yeah. to sort of say we need to we need to make an appointment. We all agree that there was a mm -hmm. need to communicate it, um, but what we don't agree on is whether the mm -hmm. minister should have been the person to sort of say, here, hire my friends. All of this is background so that we can bring everyone up to speed listening to the podcast to the point at which you wrote your analysis article in Sunday Times this past week which is in response to Parliament's Ethics Committee exonerating him. But it's important background work or a reminder of those background facts because there are too many facts to keep tabs on in our country. There's one more key factual question that I want to ask you then before we put Parliament on trial. At the point at which the guy exits government, is it technically because of an acceptance 
that Treasury is right that he got involved in procurement, full stop. Or does he exit as an admission that if enable digital vibes specifically to get a tender? Because those two characterizations differ. So again, I'd like, I have to say no to both. So in terms of a resignation letter that he writes, he resigns purely out of respect for the office. So he doesn't want mud to be thrown to, on the office of the Minister of Health. He must step aside basically up until, um, you know, the processes that have, have run its course. And then I think this is for me, and I mean, as a sidebar, one of the things that shows a weakness um, in President Cyril Ramaphosa's presidency, you know, is the yeah. fact that you now have this open-ended, sort of open, and there's a dark cloud mm. hovering around this mm. individual, you know, which is unfair on us, but also unfair on him. You know, of course, on his side, yeah. um, it is something that he will then use to advance his political um, sort of, you know, um, ambitions, yeah. because yeah. he will come out and say, yeah. Yeah, I'm being uh, targeted. Yeah. You know, um, these guys have, you know, forced me to resign and to leave government as a, you know, uh, as a disciplined cadre of the movement. <laughs> I decided not to yeah. change the office with these yeah. allegations and I walked yeah. away. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, the, the very short answer you see, yes, is that he did not resign because he felt that he was found out or he did not resign because he felt that he had erred in playing mm -hmm. a role in the appointment of, you know, digital Well, violence. you know, there's something that I quote... Every other year or so, I'm now old enough to have that kind of gaps between quoting something and re-quoting it. A good friend of mine who is a judge once said to me something that he can't say himself publicly, but is really important and insightful. I think he can say it now if he, if he chose to. That it's remarkable how much we differ in, as South African voters political judgments we're allowed to make from a legal point of view without worrying about how a legal case is settled. I can decide whether I think Sabeloskit is a nasty person, regardless of how a legal process plays out. I can decide whether Zuelim Kize is probably guilty of corruption, regardless of what the SIU says for that matter, or what happens if Shamila Batoy were to try and trial him in a court of law, that the legal process is self-standing, the political arena and judgments related to politics is a self-standing silo, the same with moral judgments and with good old common sense. And before we go any further, I want your take on this, and I'll give mine as well as a fellow commentator, it is just way too improbable from a common sense point of view that this guy's family and the close aid benefit in these kinds of way multiple times in his career and he thinks that he can get away on the grounds of plausible deniability because there isn't an obvious giant smoking gun that had been found and effectively wanting us to put aside common sense and asking what is likely and what is unlikely. Yeah. And I mean, and, 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 and I think for him, you see this particularly because the way that he obfuscates sometimes, which is what led me to write this piece, 
um, was the fact that I felt like the fact that they were sort of trumpeting it um, was an insult, was an insult to, to, to South Africans, was an insult to us in the press, yes. was an insult to the guys that have spent countless hours going through reams of documents and bank statements, um, you know, piecing together the narrative of how this money was siphoned out of the state. You know, because he's basically now, you know, showing us the middle finger and basically saying that you guys can do whatever it is that you want to do. Um, I will come out, you know, smelling like roses, having not gone through any process, by the way. Um, And I think that's what absolutely drove Mm -hmm. me up the wall with this one. And I felt that, you know, um, this piece needs to be written. Um, And I do agree with you, by the way, is that um, one need not wait for the outcome of, you know, the court processes here for one to be able to say, but the objective facts and the evidence that is in front of us shows us that something went incredibly wrong um, in that entire transaction. I mean, you've got, for example, um, the SIU going as far as actually finding a cash and carry where these guys were actually collecting bags and plastic bags of money um, to be able to convert what would be electronic funds to physical hard cash that can be spent without one tracing it. You know, I they totally were able agree. to actually, you know, so yeah, I mean, yeah, when, yeah. and we've never really heard proper um, explanation from the minister on these things. Mm. Um, you know, he mm. just sort of says, I know nothing about it, you know, talk to my son. Yeah, um, and he real. wants us absolutely. to divorce the fact absolutely. that this yeah. boy, the son of his, is related to him as the person that was the ultimate, you know, overseer in that department. Yeah. Now let's get to Parliament, which is, I think, really, I mean, if you if you didn't know the background, everything that Sabello has explained in this episode is important to you because it empowers you with information. The next part of our conversation, which is the last part is really the essence of why, in the first place, I wanted him on. Parliament is supposed to hold government accountable. It's difficult in South Africa because we've got a party political system and not, for example, a pure constituency-based system where MPs are scared of what members of their constituency think as citizens. MPs are scared of what party headquarters say. And so all of our parliaments after 1994 have really been fairly weak, sometimes stronger than other occasions, but not nearly as good in the oversight role as they should be because of the party political system. The fifth parliament was arguably the best. Um, But now we see in this moment, again, a regression where you have an important oversight body reaching a conclusion that runs counter to common sense on a technicality. And the way I understand it, and please tell me whether you think I'm right descriptively, and then after that we'll evaluate the spirit of of what they did, is that these guys are basically saying, Parliament that is, listen, um, as far as any benefits are in relation to changes to his house or property, yes, there was a Minkiza involved, but actually it wasn't Zueli. So we can't punish the guy on that particular ground and therefore he has to be exonerated. As for his son benefiting, his son is not dependent on him and an ordinary language reading of the code is that it must be a spouse or an immediate direct dependent that benefits before he can be found guilty. Ergo, he is free to go. 
<laughs> You've got it. I mean, that, that, that's it. Um, and I mean, that's what is of suit. But now the question I want to ask you then is, as the journalist who is on top of the minutiae of the facts and the likely facts that one must infer unless you really want to play logical games that are just absolutely stupid and not commonsensical, when you hear that kind of technically coherent reasoning from the committee, how do you respond to that? What comes up for you? <laughs> Immediately, I start blowing steam out of my ears. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I mean, um, it, it, it's it's flawed, right? Technically, technically, it's, it's somewhat sound. I don't even want to say it's technically sound because, um, it, first of all, right, if you are saying that there was gratification, um, I'll begin with with the first um, instance, which is the second when the committee was looking at it, you know, the renovations to the house. So if you want to talk about gratification there, who owns the property, right? Um, Kiza might not be the one, it might not have been the right in Kiza that was sending, you know, the invoices <laughs> and receiving the money and processing the payment to the service provider. But ultimately, you know, it's the service provider that, um, you know, went and did work at the property owned by the minister. You know, therefore, yeah. you don't necessarily have to have the minister in the room um, when this thing is being discussed, right? But who ends up, you know, getting the gratification? Um, there was a fellow that, you know, I was debating this with in the morning. So one of the things he was saying was that, so now you're telling me that if your helper at your house had a party and you were away and then they made noise, and they pissed off the neighbors. Uh, there must be a commission of inquiry into you now. And I said, but this is the wrong analogy because the analogy should be that if you know the person that is employed by me went and took money from where I work and stole money from where I work and built a pool in my house, then by all means investigate me because when that person that works for me leaves, they're not going to take the pool with. The pool, the no, pool that's is absolutely the right. But even the analogy on its own is, 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 is doesn't help your buddy's case because if you go away for the weekend and I promise you I'm going to look after your place and just be there quietly and it's in a complex and I have a massive party, of course you are liable because the rules have to be obeyed by you as the, the owner and you can be pissed off with me. But if there's a rule that says tenants will be fined for making noise. You can't say to the body corporate, well, it wasn't me. I was actually in Belito. It was my buddy who was visiting. Yeah, no, no, true. And I mean, you know, so, so the analogy is flawed anyway, but, but so, so, so that's for the renovations. What about the idea of dependency? What, what do you make of that? My son doesn't live with me. He's not my dependent. It's absolutely ridiculous, right? You see, and I mean, uh, the sort of point I approached it at, um, in the piece was to just simply draw the point that uh, parliament and parliamentarians are the ones that are overseeing the work that is done by government, right? And what we know from, for instance, um, the two Zondo reports is that parliament has been one of those institutions that enabled um, state capture. And in fact, it was politicians at every instance of all the SOEs and all the government departments that were looted that played the most important role of instructing that all of these things be done. So if you've got those individuals with that sort of lax 
um, you know, sort of, you know, uh, those lax guidelines on in terms of their conduct and who, you know, may benefit from work in the departments that they oversee. But then you look at the ordinary person inside a government department, your DG, your DTGs, the fact that for them, it's much more stricter, right? How does it happen? Because these guys have no power at all. You know, a DG, um, every time they want to do something, either they must hide it very well from the political principle or the political principle must tacitly exactly. approve that this thing happened. You know? Exactly. No, but then going into the detail of the actual dependency, I mean, it's ridiculous to me, you know? Um, and I mean, I, I kept on saying, and I mean, oh, I know this is quite, you know, stupid to say, but I kept on saying that the only mistake that the minister perhaps made here with the revelations that came 24 hours later was that it was his wife who had money going to her business that repaid the loan. If it had gone into a girlfriend's house, the guy would be able to just start printing posters for the ANC conference in December, you know, because he would be seen yeah. as, you know, being quite ordinary member of parliament then, um, according to, you know, the code. But, but that's an important point, Sabella, because the implication of this feeble decision by Parliament's Ethics Committee is that it says to would-be criminals in government, go ahead with your criminal behavior, but here's a pathway for plausible deniability. Don't funnel it to someone living in your house and don't be at your house when the renovators arrive. That's the message it sends. You know, which is, which is for me the wrong message that we should be sending. Um, and I mean, when you began um, your intro, you were talking about what has happened in KZN, you know, and, you know, the economic cost of that, you know, these last couple of days is going to be felt greatly by South Africans. There's a billion rand that needs to be found. Yeah. Um, and it's nowhere to be found. We've got an ESCOM that is going to load shed in my area in an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, and because that is that is a, a reality of, of how we live, right? So there's an opportunity uh, cost got, here. This is not just some yes, side conversation. You know, you know, absolutely. And it's we as real. citizens are being asked yeah. each and every day to pop out more money yeah. to make sure that we prop up SA Inc. Yes. Um, yes. But we see no change of behavior. Absolutely. You know, from yes. the people that are asking us to actually do the propping up. Since, um, you know, it's. Yeah, second last question, and then we wrap it there so that you have a chance to charge your phone before um, load shedding happens. Um, and I'm just thinking aloud with the second last question. I know, you know, the legal beat is our colleague Frenny, but I wonder in covering this story over the last couple of days with the Ethics Committee's decision, whether you've come across any legal opinion here. Because it seems to me that if the committee, and no doubt it was probably an ANC majority again that probably did this, really wanted to take its oversight role constitutionally seriously, it could have asked itself the question and even pick up the phone to the state legal advisors to get opinion on this. Are we obliged to read the language in the code narrowly or can we ask, which sometimes happen in legal interpretation, what is the purpose of this law? And that gives you a bit more interpretation space to say, the language is unclear here. Children are dependents 
And children don't always stay in the physical structure called the house. So when we say dependence, can it include someone who's not physically in the house? Because let's be honest, if you send your kid to university, they are dependent even if they're not in the house. So there's scope here, there's ambiguity. And once there's ambiguity, there's the possibility of asking the question, what was the intention of the drafters of the code? And then suddenly you've got a bit more wiggle room. I wonder whether they bothered to even go there. Yeah, no, I think uh, they purposefully avoided that, CBS, um, because they knew that where it would take them um, is where they would not want to go. You know, that example that I gave you about who actually stood to benefit from the renovation, exactly. you know, between the one Kiza and the other. But also, I mean, the question that one ought to ask themselves is, even if the even if the Dani is not a dependent um, of the minister, would he have been in a position to actually get everything that he got from digital vibes where his father not a yeah. minister? Then when you ask that question, then you begin to ask what role did uh, Dr. William Kiza play in the awarding of the I contract? Couldn't agree what with would you he more. have known? Yeah. What should he have known? Because then, and I mean, to me, what I didn't argue in the piece, of course, is the fact that in as much as they think that this does great service to Drs. William Kieser, it actually does a disservice to him because those questions still linger. And in fact, new questions in my head are now that what role did Dr. Mkiza play in the outcome that we saw with the ethics committee? Because it's simply so ridiculous. Absolutely. Whereas if they had done their job and actually did what they were supposed to do, um, they would have maybe, you know, been able to even have a report that looks at these things properly. And it's not unheard of. I mean, if you remember the Dinapole case, yeah. for instance, uh, the ethics committee there reviewed documents, interviewed people, um, you know, it was a proper, proper investigation. Um, as a result, it went where this ethics committee wasn't going to go because it found that even though the gentleman that had been traveling with the minister um, on official trips and basically had been a lover of the minister, um, could be seen as a spouse because everything that he was doing um, was one that, you know, was occupying a position of a spouse. So who knows that if they had looked into the relationship between Zulim Kiza and, the, and his son, especially I around the if they have I'm come to a point where it says that yeah. in this particular instance, you depended on your father to be able to go and collect those absolutely. plastic bags of money instead. 100%. Beautifully put. And that's why the intention behind the code, the purpose of it, the spirit of it, matter as much as what the Oxford Dictionary has to say about each and every single word. Which brings me neatly to the last question, the last issue, and I'll give you two, three minutes to give a view on it. It's not only Dr. Mkise that has done a disservice because questions over his head linger, and I think you're right about that. I think it also does Parliament itself a disservice because even when we despair and we think about lazy ANC backbenchers who suck up to Lutuli House, in my mind... You know, I've always thought over the years, even as a lighty, I can't really trust Parliament that much. But when I hear Scopa, I get excited. Gavin Hoods, you get excited. And when you hear Ethics Committee, you get excited. So you've kind of like learned what the exceptions are to the stereotypes. And then when the exceptions let you down, then you think, ah, Nierman, the whole institution is completely fraught. It's completely disheartening. I mean, um, it, it, as you say, I mean, we, we always had that, and I think even us as journalists had that thing that 
you might write an article, you know, about corruption taking place in a municipality or a government department. Nothing happens immediately. But one of the things that you do know, of course, is that, oh, I, I know that the AG, for instance, reads newspapers. <laughs> so at some point, this thing is going to become alive again. You know, people are going to be held to account. And I know that Parliament um, also reads the press. So at some point, this thing is going to be raised in a committee. You know, but when you can see that actually, you know, these committees are as susceptible um, to some of these political pressures um, as any other board of an SOE or anyone else, um, yeah. then it tells you that, you know, we've still got a long way to go. And I think for me, the most important thing here you see is that I'm viewing all of this through the Tumamina lens. You know, we have been mm. told that there's a new dawn, um, but yet every corner we turn, we see cracks of the old dawn. Um, you know, struggling to break through. Absolutely. Tabela Sketi, senior investigative journalist with Sunday Times and in the arena holding stable more broadly. Love your work, as you know. Thank you so much for coming on your CBS on Times Live. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great one.